Yeah. Awesome. What were you doing when you were 10? You weren't that cool. Neither was I, you know. Hey, can you imagine being like a seven-year-old and walking into your Sunday school class and this is what you get to participate in? That's what I'm talking about. That's why you need to go be a part of our children's ministry. Go sign up, all right? Hey, uh, how would you like to follow that act, too? That's my job today. So I won't even try to be as near as cute as them. I can't do that. So I'll just dive right in, all right? We've been in this series called All My Life, and I've been thinking about the fact that we live in what people have been calling the information age, right? Um, See, a lot of us in the room don't even remember this, but there was actually a time where if you wanted to find out what happened today, you had to wait until tomorrow. It was very strange. They threw this like piece of paper um, in your driveway and it had words on it and you would have to read it and it would tell you what happened yesterday. And, and then there was a time where if you wanted to know what happened today, you had to at least wait until the evening news. And then if some sort of newsworthy event happened after the evening news, you had to wait until the next day to find out what had happened the night before. It's not that way anymore. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but we now have 24 hour news services. We have the internet, we have Facebook, we have text messaging, and of course we have Twitter. And so we see things that are happening as they're happening. We learn about things as they're happening. And at the end of the day, this has kind of changed the way that we learn. I think the internet really has changed the way that we learn. I I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting around with a group of people and some really important question has come up, like who's the youngest person to ever throw a no-hitter in Major League Baseball, something like that. And um, within like seconds, everybody's got their iPhones out and we have the answer. In fact, we've got, we get more information than what we're we're looking for. And you find out who is the youngest pitcher in the National League, in the American League, and in the pre-1900 era, in the post-1900 era. You can learn more information than you were even looking for within seconds. And we got this wonderful tool now called Wikipedia. Anybody just a Wikipedia nerd? You just love Wikipedia? Yeah, it's brilliant. You learn more than you, you ever bargained for by just kind of within seconds hitting a few buttons. And what this has created, I think, is maybe even a few drawbacks. Because at the end of the day, we've become a, a group of people who know a little bit about a whole lot of stuff, right? And we've kind of adopted this kind of fast food mentality when it comes to learning. In other words, if we can't figure it out within seconds on the internet, we get frustrated very easily and very quickly, and so we just kind of give up trying, right? Now, at the end of the day, this whole thing is actually driven by something that's really good and really healthy, which is a pursuit to know what was maybe once before perceived as unknowable, a kind of a hunger and thirst for knowledge, and that's really, really a good thing. And so today, my question is simply this, can can we really know God? Like, can we really, really know him? Or is he unknowable by nature? Is that just kind of the deal with God? Last week, we talked about this thing called prayer and what it looks like to actually talk to God, to pour out our souls and our hearts to him, to kind of reveal what's going on in the depths of our lives. And here's my question today. Does God ever, like, talk back? Does God, does God speak? Does God reveal anything about himself to people like you and me? Does God make himself known? In other words, is there any information in this information age that we can learn about God? And with that information, what should we do with it? See, there's plenty of speculation about God. Lots of people have written about God or what they believe to be true about God. There's a lot on Wikipedia about God. Go home and check it out. I googled God this week. Uh, 497 million hits later, I was a bit overwhelmed. Uh, I came across God.com, which obviously is not managed by God because it's a very lame website. Um, I, did a, I, I did a Google image search for God and I kept coming up with pictures of Morgan Freeman, which was kind of cool. Um, but... <laughs> But at the end of the day, it's not terribly helpful um, because I'm not asking, 
I'm not asking, do people have anything to say about God? My question is, does God have anything to say for himself? Does God speak and has God spoken? And I got to be really honest with you, this is kind of confession time for me. Uh, because, I, because I'm a pastor, I sometimes have people come up to me and they kind of lead with, hey, God told me, and, and I got to be honest with you, all right? When people lead with that, I tend to cringe. All right, I'm very, very skeptical, not because I'm skeptical about God and his ability to communicate with us, but because, and this is going to disappoint some of you, but it seems that there's been a trend with the people who come up to me and say, um, hey, God told me, it seems like a lot of them are kind of off the rocker crazy. All right. Uh, And so I'm a little bit skeptical about that. Or here's the other side of that. Sometimes people who say that or lead with that, what they're ultimately doing is they're trying to use the phrase God told me as justification for some really horrible decision they're about to make. You ever had anybody do that in in your life? I mean, I've had people tell me, well, God told me to leave my husband and children for that other guy. Really? God told you that? I've had people tell me, uh, God told me it's okay for me to drink again. You're an alcoholic though, right? Right. But God said it's okay. Really? God told you that. Or kind of, you know, this, we see this on the news all the time. God told you that you could go picket outside of soldiers' funerals. Or God told you to fly planes into those buildings. Or God told you to murder those people. Re- really? Is, is that what God's out there telling people to do? See, I'm really, really skeptical when people say God told me. Not because I'm skeptical about God, but because I'm skeptical about people. So here's kind of the ground level that I'm beginning at today. And you might not begin here, but this is where I'm kind of laying the groundwork for where we're going today. I believe a few things to be true. Okay, see if you're with me on this. Um, I believe that if there's a God out there, if there's an almighty maker, creator of heaven and earth, my belief is if he did all that, he's perfectly capable of communicating with us if he wants to. If he has the desire to communicate with people like you and me, if he really did create all this, I believe he's probably pretty capable of doing that. The second thing is this. I believe if there's a God out there, I believe he is smart enough to not contradict himself. I believe that he's smart enough to not contradict himself. And third, I believe that, that, that God does speak and God does have a desire to reveal himself to people like you and me. Now, the question becomes, how does he go about doing that? Or is it left totally up to us? Like if somebody comes to you and said, God told me, are you totally constrained to like go with them because God can communicate with people. So after all, I guess you better do what they say. Or is there some sort of objective way to look at this? Or is it just call it kind of a big subjective mess? So back to that prayer thing we talked about last week. So when we're praying, when we're kind of done pouring out our soul to God, presenting our requests, all that kind of stuff, should we then just kind of sit and be still and wait for a voice from heaven or some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling or some sort of writing on the wall or the walls to shake and the rocks to shatter? Is that what we should do? Maybe, but I doubt it. Here's what I mean. Um, Do I think it's possible for God to do all those things? Yeah, absolutely. I really do. Do I believe that God has done and still does supernatural things like that? Yes, I do. I believe that with all my heart. Now, do I believe that it's the normal way that God is going to communicate with people like you and me? Or that it's likely that God's going to communicate with people like you and me that way throughout the course of our lives? No. No, I I really don't. i got to be honest with you. As a pastor, I've never heard God like speak out loud to me. I I haven't. I've never been praying and had a hand appear on the wall and write out exactly what I'm supposed to do. Um, So where does that leave people like me? And if you're in that same boat with me, people like you. Are we just not the lucky ones who get to hear from God in that way? Or does God just remain unknowable to people like you and me? 
this guy named Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, he was, he was walking around one day in Athens, Greece, which was kind of the hub of all uh, culture, art and science and philosophy and religion for the whole world at that time. A lot of really smart people hung out there, and they were also very religious people. Uh, one historian tells us that at the time that Paul was walking around there, you, you could have easier, it would have been easier to find a god or an idol to worship than to find a human being. So that's the kind of culture Paul's walking around in. Listen to what he has to say. This is in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now here's the thing. We go a million different directions with that. There's a lot there. But at the end of the day, what I want to say is this. I I don't think we're altogether that different from those Greek people that Paul was dealing with. I think we're pretty religious too in the sense that all our lives we've been searching and longing and looking and hoping that there's someone out there who's worth knowing. And apparently Paul thought that this unknown God could actually be known by people like you and me. That we could indeed search for him and actually find him. That we could listen for him and actually hear him. That this God actually does reveal himself. Paul prayed for for some of his friends in a place called Ephesus one time. And this is the way it went. Listen to this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So that you may know him better. In other words, Paul really did think it was possible for people like us to gain wisdom and knowledge about God so that we could know him better. So again, we're back at the same question. How does he do that? How does he reveal himself? How does he make himself known? And what I want to spend the rest of this morning doing is kind of unpacking a few different ways that I believe God speaks to us, that he reveals himself to people like you and me. And the first way I believe that God does this is through his creation. And I got to be really honest with you, this is an easy one for me. Like there's no big obstacle in this one for me. So I'm not going to get all scientific this morning. We did that a few weeks ago in our big questions about Christianity class. The second week of that, we asked the question, how do you reconcile science with Christianity? So if that's a big question for you, go online to flatironchurch.com and download that. All right. But today what I want to say is this. When I, when I walk through the mountains, when I've sat on top of 14ers and looked down on 12,000 foot peaks, when I've jumped into the ocean, when I sat on a cliff at Giant's Causeway in Ireland and watched waves crashing into rock formations, there's never been a moment like that where I'm taking in a spectacular scene like that where everything welled up within me to say, wow, this is a really cool accident. It's never happened. 
In those moments, what wells up within me is this unbelievable thing within my heart and reaches my lips that really resonates with what Psalm 42, 7 says, which is this. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. In other words, the depth of who God is draws something out of the depths of who I am. And I can't help but be overwhelmed by who he is, his majesty, his power, and his creativity. My daughter Landry loves animals. She just really loves animals. So we watch um, Animal Planet and Discovery Channel all the time. And we like to go to the zoo. And when we go to the zoo and we go through the, the reptile area and we come across things like the Panamanian golden frog, like that right there. Have you seen things like this? Or uh, when you go to the bird exhibit and you see things like the bird of paradise, which has like 25 different varieties of that crazy looking thing. Um, when I see things like that in nature... My heart immediately says something like this. That looks a lot more like art than an accident to me. You think? A lot of times we'll be driving home on on County Line Road and and the sun will be setting over the mountains. And my daughter for a long time has had this habit. If the the sunset is particularly uh, exciting that night, she'll say something like, Look how God painted the sky for us tonight, Daddy. And she's actually basically quoting the Bible. She's quoting that guy named David who we learned so much about last week. He was a shepherd boy and then he spent all that time on the run. And so he spent a lot of time out under the stars. And this is what David said. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Does God speak? Yes, he does. Look up sometimes. Look up sometime. Look at the the work of his hands pouring forth speech. Look up at the stars tonight before you go to bed and listen as God displays knowledge about himself. And so what do we learn about God as we look up? What do we gain about him as we look up? Well, that guy Paul said this in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So, so what Paul is saying is, listen, folks, God's not hiding. Look around at creation. All of creation begs the question, who created this? Who made this? See, when I'm like walking down uh, the street by shops or something like that, and I come across a, an easel with a canvas and a, a painting on it, and it's a beautiful painting, I don't stop and look at that and go, well, that's very odd. How in the world did all those paints arrange themselves in such a way as to create a depiction of reality? And how in the world did all those paints just accidentally come together in such beautiful form and texture? That's not what I do. When I come across a beautiful painting, one of my questions becomes, that's beautiful. I wonder who painted it. That's what creation does. And I assume the same creator had to have been in place when I see creation like when I walk by a river or rock formation or when I pick up one of my kids. So, all right, Scott, so are you saying the takeaway this morning is we just need to get outside more? Yeah, probably. We probably do, don't you think? But is that the only way that God speaks? No, there's other ways that God speaks, has spoken and continues to speak. One of those ways is through his son, Jesus. Here's what I mean. John 1.18 says this. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, now talking about Jesus, who's at the Father's side has made him known. Or in Colossians 1.15, it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In other words, 
God has never revealed himself so clearly as when he sent his son to this earth to give us the knowledge of what God is like and who God is. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know who God is? Follow Jesus. And that would be very helpful if we lived 2,000 years ago, right? When Jesus was walking around on this earth and we go, well, there he is. Now follow him, right? But where does that leave us now? Has God kind of given up revealing himself? No, not at all. See, there's another way that God reveals himself. It's through his Holy Spirit-inspired word. We call it the Bible. The Bible. And I spent a lot of time in our Big Questions series uh, going through uh, why I believe and why we believe around here that the Bible isn't just a book that has some relevant things to say to us. There's lots of books like that. Like, there's lots of books in my life that have some relevant things to say. But what we say around here, our first value for this church, in fact, is that the Bible is our authority for life. See, that's an altogether different thing. Uh, Because with other books, if I come to that book with my opinion and that book says something else, then I have a tendency to kind of throw the book out and keep my opinion, right? What we're saying with the Bible is, is when we say it's our authority for life, we approach the Bible with our preconceived notions and our opinions. And when we see something different or our worldview is different than the view we see there, then the challenge for us, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, is to come under the authority of the Bible, not the other way around. See, that's an altogether different proposition. Now, why would we do that? Because the Bible is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. What in the world does that mean? I mean, that sounds very religious. See, we believe something around here that's really kind of mind-blowing. We believe that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call that kind of the Trinity, all right, or the triune nature of God. And at the same time as one person. And I'm not very good at math, but at the end of that, I kind of go, that doesn't make any sense. Right. And I don't think it's supposed to. In fact, there's been a lot of people who over the course of the last several hundreds of years have tried to come up with some really lame metaphors to try to get us to understand the Trinity when I don't think we were supposed to be able to understand it. I think it's supposed to be mind-blowing. I think that's the point. See, my belief is this. If there's an almighty creator God out there, I bet that my little old self probably can't comprehend everything about him. I bet there's some things about him that are mind-blowing and I'm perfectly okay with that. So it's... It's easy for us to get kind of a conception of God the Father because we've got a concept of fathers, for good or for bad, right? It's easy for us to get a concept of God the Son because we've got sons, for good or for bad, right? But to get a concept of God the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, that's like way abstract and really hard to get our, our hearts around. Which is why Jesus kind of described him for us before he ascended to be with the Father in heaven. He described the Holy Spirit for us. And John chapter 16 is one of those places. Look at this on the screens. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. He's talking to his disciples. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He'll bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. This is all over the New Testament that one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to make known to us the thoughts of God. That's what the Spirit does. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We've not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. In other words, God has freely given us knowledge about Him, including His very thoughts through the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty big deal. Now the question again comes back to, okay, but how does He do that? How does he do that? And this is where a lot of Christians go a bunch of different directions. 
This is where a lot of followers of Jesus would say, well, what you do is you, you sit around and you wait. You wait for some special feeling, some voice in your head, some tingly sensation. And again, I get really nervous about all that. Not because I think God can't communicate with us, but because my belief is this. If God wants to communicate with us, He won't be vague. He won't be vague. He won't be unclear. In other words, uh, as I read the Bible, something really kind of jumps off the pages to me. It becomes clear that whenever God has a very specific, direct message for someone, He's pretty adept at being able to communicate that clearly. He does things like set bushes on fire and speak out of the bush. All right? I would listen to that. He does things like send angels to like knock people over and blind them and say, I need you to listen to me now. I have a message from God. That's clear enough, wouldn't you say? He does things like open up heavens and speak so that people can hear. He does things like that. Now, here's the problem. A lot of times we go, we approach the Bible and go, well, it seems like God spoke that way for a long, long time in all those supernatural ways. And then all of a sudden he just stopped with people like us. You got to understand those methods were extraordinary in the Bible as well. The Bible covers a span of a huge amount of human history, thousands and thousands of years. And those things happen very uncommonly then, just like they do now. We've got to understand that. So, so what are the practical implications of all that for people like you and me? What does that really mean? Well, let's kind of boil it down in a real practical way. Let's, let's say you've got a decision in front of you. And we're going to talk a lot about this at the women's retreat and then the men's retreat in the fall. But let's say you've got a, a decision in front of you, kind of a crossroads. All right, So you've got like job A and job B, all right, in front of you. And you're trying to go, which one am I supposed to take? God, which one do you want me to take? Here's what I'm saying today. If God wants you to take job A and desires for you to not take job B, all right, God will make it very, very clear. He won't make you like crack some spiritual code by saying a bunch of nice religious language so that he's forced to like, okay, now I'll reveal my will to you because you said the, the magic words. That's not what he does. If God wants you to take job A and not be that passionately, he'll like, you'll go out in the morning to get the milk out of the box or get the paper and one of your trees will be on fire. All right. And he'll speak to you out of that tree and not withholding any other influences you might've had the night before. If the tree talks to you, you should listen. All right. That's, that's the way that that should play out. All right. I would recommend listening to the tree, but here's the thing for most of us, most of the time, here's what I think, think think is true in the Bible, all right? God has given us exactly the tools we need to make most of the decisions that we face in our life. What are you talking about? Ah, our brain. Our brain. And the second one would be some moral guidelines that we find in the Bible. What what does that look like practically? Okay, so back to job A and job B. Here's the way that would play out. If job A involves something like prostitution... Cross it off the list, all right? That's an easy one, all right? Brain, moral guidelines, made that an easy decision. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, that leads to the next thing, and I think it's really important for us to to understand today. If God wants to communicate to you, he's not going to contradict himself. He's not going to contradict himself. So, So if you sense that God is telling you to do something, or the Christianese way of saying this, if you feel led, all right? Have you ever had somebody walk up to you and say, I feel led to tell you, and then usually it's followed by criticism? You ever had that happen? Um, And I always like to respond with, well, I feel led to tell you to shut up, you know? (laughs) I'm feeling led one way, you're feeling led the other. Who gets to arbitrate this? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's like... But here's the thing, all right? If, if If you're feeling a sense or a leading or whatever you want to call it, your first question ought to be, is this consistent with what God has already said? 
What do you mean God has already said? What he's already said in the Bible. So one of my, one of my favorite verses is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. It says this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, You know what that phrase, uh, God-breathed, means? It means prompted by the Spirit. Literally inspired by the Holy Spirit. And again, if you're not in for that, if you're going, I don't know if I believe that, go listen to Big Questions about Christianity week four. We talked about why I believe that. So... So if you sense that God's telling you to do something that he's clearly outlined in scripture that you're not supposed to do, now you're at a new crossroads in your life, right? And it looks like this. You can, number one, you could just assume that whatever you were sensing or whatever that leading was, was not from God and you just ate bad pizza the night before, something like that. Or you can call God a liar and do it anyway. Ouch, right? What do you mean, Scott? Let me be clear, and I'll I'll use myself as an example here, all right? If I ever come to any of you, all right? Some of you are really good friends of mine, all right? If I ever come to any of you and go, so here's the deal. God told me to leave Allie and my three children to go be happy with this other person. In that moment, number one, please kill me, all right? Because I would rather die than blow up my family, all right? And you probably should get to me before Allie does, all right? But before you do, I need you to point out two things to me very clearly, All right. I need you to point out, number one, what I'm doing by saying God told me to do that is I'm calling God a liar. Because God would never tell me to do that. God is not wishy-washy. He doesn't make a command to me like stay with Allie till the day you die and then make an exception because all of a sudden my feelings are different. He doesn't go, oh, I never considered your situation when I made the command in the first place. No, he doesn't say that. And if I ever do say that to you, here's the last thing you need to tell me is, um, hey, Scott, you're being a coward. And here's why you need to say that. Because what I'm ultimately doing is I'm using uh, religious language to veil the fact that I've decided I'm going to do something whether God's told me to do it or not. That's what I'm actually doing. When, in fact, it would actually be more brave and honest to just say, listen, I've decided I'm going to do this even though I know God tells me I shouldn't. And I think that's what a lot of us do because um, we have we want to... We have this desire for this sense of peace. So we put religious paint all over really bad decisions so that we can feel better about what we're about to do. So, Scripture is helpful in this way. Scripture kind of helps us come to our senses in this way. That's why it says that all Scripture is, is profitable or helpful or beneficial. Beneficial for what? Well, things like teaching. In other words, Jim and I, uh, the reason we continue to come back to the Bible week after week is because we don't have anything else to say. We don't have anywhere else to go. There's no other place that we find the words of life, to quote what Peter said to Jesus one day. We can't find that anywhere else. And so week after week, even if we don't like what we see in the Bible, it's our role to go, here's what we see. Now, how do we wrestle with that? Scripture is useful for that. It's also useful for this thing called rebuking. Now, that's a really scary religious word. I've got to be honest. I've had enough rebuking from religious people in my life to serve me for the rest of my life. So I'm not in for that anymore. Maybe that's some of your stories too. Unfortunately, this word's been kind of twisted. See, this was never meant to be translated as you bash someone over the head with the Bible. You use the Bible as a weapon against somebody. No, that's not what it's intended for. In fact, the Bible was intended to be used for our benefit so we could know the thoughts of God. See, what this literally means is to hold up the truth in front of you and hold that up against your life and see if those line up with each other. And if they don't, to come to your senses and to come under the authority of the Scripture like we've been talking about. It's useful for that. 
It's also useful for correcting. In other words, the Bible doesn't just point out when we're on the wrong path. The Bible points to the right path as well. In other words, if I'm on the wrong road and you come up beside me and tell me you're going the wrong way, that's not helpful unless you can tell me how to go the right way, right? And that's what the Bible does for us very, very well. Uh, Maybe you read Alice in Wonderland growing up or you saw the the movie recently and you're still suffering through nightmares like me, all right? Um, But... There's this moment where Alice is at a crossroads and she's got like path A and path B and the the cat comes and speaks to her, which is probably the cause of the nightmares. Um, The cat comes and speaks to her and says, well, where are you trying to go? And she says, well, I don't really know. And he says, well, if you don't know where you're trying to go, then it doesn't really matter which path you take. Now, does it? So here's the beautiful thing about the Bible. If If you're wanting to follow Jesus, the Bible articulates how to do that really, really well. It's useful for that. It's also useful for training Training in righteousness, uh, continued discipline is what that means. This, think about this in terms of athletics. It's to the, it's the continue to refine you. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about Albert Pujols. He's the best hitter in baseball, bar none right now. And he's also taking more batting practice than anybody else right now. And there's probably a connection to those two things, don't you think? It's continued discipline, continued training. And if we'll continue to come back to the Bible, that's what it will do. It'll transform our lives. Now, all of this is for a purpose. In other words, in that 2 Timothy 3.16 passage, the two most important words you might want to circle would be, so that. Anytime you see so that in the Bible, you should probably pay attention to what's coming next. It says, so that we can be thoroughly equipped. What does that mean? So that we can be completely competent to do what God has told us to do. Now, how do we get equipped? By God, through his Bible. In other words, God's not going to tell you to do something you aren't capable of doing. And in reading the Bible, we get supplied with what we need to do it. You ever been unequipped for something, gone skiing, forgot your gloves, gone biking, forgot your helmet? It's not a good feeling, right? Let's be really, really honest. How many of us walk through life feeling very unequipped when it comes to following Jesus? So let me ask, I think this is a good question, all right? Let me ask this. Have you ever considered that your ability to carry out what Jesus wants you to do has a direct connection with the amount of time you spend listening to what Jesus has to say? Have you ever considered that your ability to carry out what Jesus wants you to do has a direct connection with the amount of time we spend listening to what Jesus has to say? And that's in the Bible. And I know that can be really intimidating and frustrating and confusing. And let's be honest, sometimes really, really boring. And every weekend, it seems like I have at least one conversation where somebody comes to me and goes, Scott, I try to read the Bible, but at the end of the day, I don't get out of the Bible what you get out of the Bible when you read it. I don't hear it the way you hear it. When Jim gets up there and talks, he says things that make sense. But when I go and read the Bible, it doesn't seem to make sense to me in the same way. Can I just tell you something? Jim and I all the time sit down with the Bible, open it up and close it and scratch our heads. Go, I have no idea what that meant. I have no idea what that meant. They'll open it again and go back again and, and keep coming back to it. But it doesn't just magically come to us. That's not the way that it works. So here's my encouragement in the midst of that. Three things, all right? Number one would be this. Don't give up. Um, don't give up on the Bible. It's really easy to feel defeated and just kind of give up. It's kind of like um, every January, everybody goes to the gym for about a week. But after a few days, right, everybody's so sore and so defeated, you just give it up until next year. And I think that's been kind of the case with the Bible for a lot of us. You decided, all right, I'm going to read the Bible this year. And you opened up to Leviticus and got very confused and threw in the towel. You know, it's like, what do I do with that? Maybe that's not the best approach. And we'll talk about that in a second. But don't give up. Second thing would be this. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. In other words, keep the kind of going to the gym uh, metaphor going. People who work out together tend to work out more. 
because they do that together. Now, the same thing is true, I think, with the Bible. Um, for a lot of us, we have relationships with other people who are following Jesus. We just never talk about the Bible together. And we've got all these resources we've provided. And again, we can't do this for you. All we can do is try to create tools and resources and opportunities for you to connect with each other. Um, but we did this thing called Bible 101 two or three times. And all that information is on our website. If you want to learn how to study the Bible Go online and, and download Bible 101 stuff. Um, every week on, on Monday, uh, we put questions and scriptures to continue to read based on what we've talked about on the weekend. You can do that alone or you can do that with each other. And I'd recommend with, with somebody else. It's really, really helpful. And the third thing would be this. Do it regularly. Do it regularly. I mean, it's really interesting. The more time you spend with the Bible, the more familiar with it you become. I mean, remember when the first time you decided, all right, I'm going to get in shape. And so you decided to run. And so you ran like a block. And then you ended up at the block like on your knees gasping for air, dialing 911. Remember that? Or the first time that you got under that weight and had that bar above you or whatever and how awkward it felt and how heavy it felt. But as you continued to go back to that bar and continued to run down the street, it eventually became a part of who you are. You became comfortable with it. Now it's just a part of what you do. Now, why would we want to do all that? Well, a good friend of mine about 30 days ago was diagnosed with a pretty aggressive cancer in his tongue and in his neck. And uh, he just had surgery the other day on the cancer in his tongue. And I think they got it all, which is great. But he said something the other day that really struck me. He said, uh, hanging out with Jesus is as natural as breathing to me. And I thought, you know, that's a weird thing to say. That just, that sounds kind of weird. It don't, It almost sounds like my friend John has like a relationship with Jesus. Right. And he would say the primary way that he continues in a relationship with Jesus is through reading the Bible day after day after day. He has this this kind of catchy rule of his own that he says, no Bible, no breakfast, no Bible, no no bed. Now, that is not like some legalistic, check it off the list, do this to earn God's love thing for my friend John. No, this is a a beautiful rhythm he's found with God precisely because God does love my friend John. That's what this is for him. See, John knows that his ability to carry out what Jesus wants him to do is directly connected with the time he spends listening to what Jesus has to say. So he reads the Bible constantly. I mean, where else is John going to be equipped to walk through cancer in the way that Jesus wants him to walk through cancer? That's the point of this whole thing, to be equipped for every good work. And what is every good work? Everything that is consistent with what God wants this, us to do in, his life, in our lives. How would we find that out? In the Bible. I mean, how do we know around here? Where did we come up with this idea of helping the poor and the widow and the orphan? Where did we get that? Did we just invent that? No, it's cover to cover in the Bible. How do we know around here that we're supposed to week after week passionately tell and communicate with people that God loves them very much, so much so that he sent his only son to die for them so that they could have a relationship with their creator through his son Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Where did we come up with that? It's in the Bible. Where did we come up with this idea that we need to continue to gather together to worship and to learn together and to be known for the way that we love and serve each other and the way we love and serve in this community and around the world? Where did we get that idea? It wasn't ours. It's in the Bible from cover to cover. You see, the whole point of all the information we have in the Bible is transformation in our lives. That's the point of it. Which is why James 1.22 says this. Look at this. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, please don't walk out of here this morning thinking the takeaway was just go home and read the Bible more. That would only be half of it. The takeaway would be, let's go read the Bible more together and then do what it says together. 
That would be the takeaway. See, there's a lot of religious people out there who can quote the Bible really, really well. They're very adept at it. They can quote it very quickly. They're very familiar with it. The problem is they're the people that Jesus criticized the most because they knew the Bible, but they didn't do anything with it. And that's not who we want to be. We want to be people who take in information that leads to transformation. See, that word doers in that James passage is actually where we get our English word for poem. In other words, the idea here is to live our lives in a very free response to who God is and what he's done. To live our lives in response to the beauty and the majesty of his creation. To live our lives in, in response to the mercy and grace he showed us through Jesus. And to live our lives in response to his clear communication through his word. And to do what he tells us to do. Because he's going to point us to the most free kind of life every time. To live our lives as a beautiful represent, representation of who he is and what he's done. And how else would we know that apart from his word? Let's stand and pray. God, a lot of us, we've got to be really, really honest. We come to you and we, we haven't seen a Bible in years, much less read one. And God, a lot of us, we've been, we've been feeling very helpless in regards to trying to make decisions in our life. But we really haven't uh, honestly seen what you have to say in your word. And so, um, God, would you um, give us the strength and the eyes to see and the ears to hear to go to your word and and to actually hear what you have to say, and then the strength and the ability to actually do that. And God, help us to do that with each other as we follow your son Jesus. In his name, amen.